0: Hi, my name is Alistair Caithness, CEO of Zion Inc. And this is our new podcast that discusses the energy industry and the blockchain. If you'd like to know more about the company or more about today's show, then visit our website, www.zyne.com. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. It's presidential primary season in America, with the Democrat Party taking center stage to find out who will be running against President Trump in 2020. But there is currently a presidential primary race afoot for the third largest party in America, the Libertarian Party. See, Libertarians believe that the government should have minimal interference in the life and finances of its citizens. The cryptocurrency community believes in a monetary system free from centralized oversight, with decisions driven by the masses rather than government. They say Bitcoin only really took off in valuation when it was heavily invested by the Libertarian Party followers. So you can see the overlap, and for today's podcast I'm joined by Adam Kokesh, a radio personality and political activist who leads the pack in terms of donations at the end of the last filing period. Today we're going to speak about the blockchain, my area of passion, and speak to Adam about the upcoming run for the President of the United States. So for all of our listeners, especially back in Scotland, can you provide a bit of background about yourself? Over to you, Adam.
1: Sir, well, before anybody gets the wrong idea, uh, I, I throw up in my mouth a little bit every time I have to introduce myself as a presidential candidate, because you really have to be some kind of psychopath to want to be president of the United States, that to wield this Unjust power over other people. And my platform is to dissolve the federal government in a peaceful, orderly, responsible manner that leaves us with 50 independent states and up to 562 sovereign native nations. So I'm not really running for president to be president as much as I am running on this platform to turn the election into a referendum on whether or not we should have a federal government or whether states and tribes should be sovereign. And so, me being president is not an option. I resign on day one. The federal government is declared bankrupt, and we start the process uh, uh, of dissolving the assets and, and paying back the American people as best we can everything that's been stolen from us. So, uh, for my background, I was I was in the Marine Corps, and uh, as you can tell from the crayons in my teeth, did a tour in Fallujah in 2004, and that really was the start of well I wish I I wish I could say it was just that I wish I could say I was smart and open-minded and and you know really just saw something wrong and was determined to figure it out and, and that that's that, that's only partially true but I, I went to iraq in 2004 and uh, as much as i enjoyed the challenge certainly had uh, a horrific experience getting to to see the worst that government is capable of and when i came home uh, i volunteered to go back but i got in trouble and so when I got out of the Marine Corps, instead of doing two tours, I did a, a year sitting at Camp Pendleton as a sergeant who spoke Arabic with civil affairs experience, mowing lawns at a barracks. And I was it was really only because I, I was disgruntled in that sense when I got out that I started questioning things. I joined Iraq Veterans Against the War. And basically the the journey to the bottom of the political rabbit hole for me was going from, OK this war is bullshit, my, my buddies died for lies. I saw people die. I saw poor men die to lie in rich men's pockets. I mean, that's, that's what war ultimately is, as it always has been as a racket. And then to see, well, the global war on terror, and then to see the, the, the two-party system and the military industrial complex for what it is, and then to see militarism and then statism really at its core, this idea that humanity has come so far, we, we've gotten so much more ethical and less violent over our history, and yet we make this exception for government. You know, don't hit, don't steal, don't kill, unless you're a cop or a soldier or an IRS agent. And you go, well, hold on a second. When you put it that way, doesn't sound like such a good idea. And, and since, since I've developed that understanding for myself of, of, of applying ethics to politics, uh, I, I've sought to serve that. I think the uh, the anti-war cause is, is the most important, really, first and foremost, in, in uh, reducing the the evil effects of government. Followed by, uh, you know, the the other mechanisms of violence that government uses directly against people in the police state, the surveillance state, the manipulations of the economy. Um, all, all of this, uh, when you realize. That at its core, there's, there's coercion behind it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to not want to do something about it. So that, that's what motivates me.
0: So just the, for the, the viewers, and there'll be some from Scotland as well. Uh, so just give them a bit of background. Why is the Libertarian Party? Because obviously everyone's heard of the, the Democrats and Republicans, but Libertarian, they hear about every four years. But why should people be looking at Libertarians as a solution going forward?
1: Right. Well, first of all, libertarian is a very inclusive term. Lots of people have different definitions. So we have to kind of, you know, I like, I like to uh, quote the Dalai Lama here because he was asked, uh, if you were president, what was the first thing, what's the first thing that you would do? And he said, I would start calling things by their true names. And, and that would resolve so much of what we're talking about. But in terms of the word libertarian, I like to take the inclusive definition that it's just someone who believes in freedom. My understanding of freedom is that that's what you have when no one is forcing their will upon you. This is the ethical concept based on self-ownership and the non-aggression principle. And that's really behind everything that the libertarian puts out in terms of policy, position, and most importantly, in our statement of principles. I've been a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party since 2004, when I got back from Iraq. It was the first time I could afford it. And at that point, I didn't even understand what it meant in those terms. For me, it was just socially liberal, fiscally conservative, and I, I really was, uh, as I would say now, an arrogant militarist minarchist and that I, I would want still the, the government to have a coercive monopoly on, on the most essential services of defense and justice and immigration and public safety and dispute resolution. And you see socializing those, collectivizing those, they're subject to the same corruptions uh, as you have with government takeover of anything else. So uh, that, that's what led me to you know, localization as the way to do this. And in running for the Libertarian Party nomination on this platform, uh, I am uh, suggesting a slightly different strategy for the Libertarian Party. And instead of being about, we're gonna, you, know, you should be free, but this guy should be your president, which seems a little contradictory to say, we don't need a president, we can localize government. We're not going to put on the ring of power and hope that we're going to find somebody who's magically not going to be corrupted, but no, we're going to throw the ring directly into the fire. And instead of libertarianism, this ethical philosophy being about government should this, government should that, you know, well, the way I say it is uh, you know, I'm I'm a, a member of the tribe. I, I don't know if you can see the the profile of my nose, but I'm I'm uh, mostly Jewish by ethnic background. And so the rise of white nationalism as a fringe movement in the U.S. today is genuinely disturbing. But as a libertarian, I still want to say, if you can get a group of people together to form a community based on whatever values you hold, I might find those ideas revolting, but I still want you to have that right. If you're a gun-grabbing socialist, you want to live in a nudist commune in the middle of the woods, you know, I'll take my entertainment from a distance, but I want you to have that right. And really, this is a, a way that libertarianism isn't really talked about in terms of what happens when we apply these principles consistently, everybody gets what they want. And the Libertarian Party is founded on those principles.
0: Okay, so so you, you spoke a little bit about uh, American localization there. And this is where I feel that that policy of American localization is actually quite similar to the way the decentralized nature of the blockchain works, whereby there's not one central control. And by being decentralized, essentially to me is, when people start to use the blockchain under this new decentralized ledger technology, what we're really doing is stripping out a level of administration. And this level of administration will uh, allow, you know, not only reduce costs, but uh, more transparency because essentially everyone's getting to see what's going on up until now they can under a central system that somebody controls. And this is where I see the yes. blockchain and one of the things the blockchain's moving forward. But your policy in American localization, now I've read about it, um, if you want to just touch on that as well, because I feel this is where the crossover is starting to come in between the blockchain and what you're talking about in American localization.
1: Yeah. And, and if, if I may answer by stepping back even one step further, which is to see this as part of the course of the natural development of intelligent life plus technology, that eventually we figure things out. Every technology generationally is distributed faster than the one before it by a scale, by an, by an order of magnitude. You think about Uh, the printing press, how long it took for books to become uh, everywhere, and then the automobile, and then the cell phone, and then smartphones. And eventually it's going to be AI. And every single iteration of technology is distributed that much faster. And what you see with the blockchain is just one other uh, amazing proof of concept that it's like when it came out, or uh, when I first first heard of uh, of Bitcoin, in uh, I think it was 2011. Um, it was it, 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 I didn't even fully understand the implication. But uh, I, at that point, I wasn't. I didn't even fully understand the, this concept of localization, which is really uh, something that I see as part of a global trend. I wouldn't be fighting for something that that I was, uh, you know, seen as a, a reversal of human events. You know, and I referenced the work of Steven Pinker, your Harvard professor, he gave a great TED talk on this. He wrote the book Better Angels of Our Nature, and his TED talk is called uh, The Surprising Decline in Violence. And what he has proven irrefutably, and you can argue with his conclusions, and I will, uh, but but what he has really proven academically irrefutably is that human violence is on the decline, it follows kind of a decay curve, and we're living in the most peaceful times in human history, that intelligent life seeks harmony. that we naturally prefer, in the capitalist sense, free trade relationships, non-coercive relationships, ethical relationships, win-win exchanges, as opposed to the win-loss that you have with coercion. And so being able to customize Your experience of what we think of as governance services or government functions uh, at at the local level when they must be geographically bound, of course, they're only ethical if you have the right to opt out on your own property and say, I'm not going to be part of this collective anymore. I'm going to be sovereign or I'm going to create a new community. And that check, that's really the ultimate check on government power when you bring markets to bear in terms of governance. But with some of the much larger order functions, and, and this is where, uh, you know, projects like BitNation were so exciting, was the possibility with the blockchain, not just, I mean, first of all, money. Okay, cool. You don't need a central authority for money. You just need a decentralized network of servers. You know, we got this. We, boom. That, like, just that was huge. And what, what's crazy about that is that that really is the underpinning. It's cool that that came first. Because, I mean, you understand the Federal Reserve, I assume most of your audience at least has uh, you know, a, a, a general understanding of, of, of US monetary policy, Federal Reserve, and, and the creation of money, and, and the, the borrowing lending system with the, the US banking system, and how it, it's, it's a fiat currency, and that if it didn't have the monopoly powers backing it of the federal, uh, federal government of the United States, that it would be, if not uh, quickly, go away by market forces, that it would at least be subject to competition. And to me, this is, this is a really exciting intersection of these dynamics right now with Libra uh, and, and Bitcoin regulation and, and the decentralization that's possible with this. But, you know, like the Scottish independence vote with you know, independence in Catalonia with, I mean, you look all over the United States, um, New Hampshire, Vermont, Texas the 51st state project in Colorado, Jefferson State, Northern California. There's a California independence movement uh, with Cal Exit. There's uh, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, all have strong independence movements. And uh, good reason, and, and, and they've thought through, they, they've done the math with the confidence to say, you know what, even if we secede by ourselves, we would be better off than under this current federal government. And what what we're offering with this campaign platform is the possibility of, hey, you don't have to go away by yourself. We can do this together. We can be united in these principles instead of united under one government. And you get your share back. You know, we're going to apportion the appropriate defensive resources of the military. We're going to pay back the individual Americans as best we can when we liquidate our federal resources. And this is one of the things I'm excited to get into with you about, Alastair. I don't know if this is something that you, you really want to uh, do the thought experiment with me, but one of the ideas we're exploring for our campaign right now just to, to test the feasibility is to see if it if we could do an airdrop of a thousand uh, tokens uh, AmeriCoins if, if we decide to go with that brand that we're looking into and uh, say that we're, we're all we're gonna issue them by social security number if you have a social security number as of signing the executive order you know we're, you're, you're gonna be entitled to a thousand AmeriCoins and those are the only tokens that we will accept. That's the only currency that we'll accept for the land assets and the uh, the material assets of the federal government that we're liquidating before returning them to the American people through Social Security. Excuse me, as a as a continuation of that program, um, and and you know this is a first. We have to really do some some analysis to see, uh, you know, what's feasible here because the. Just the acreage of the federal government that we might be able to uh, sell off could be uh, you know, somewhere, any, anywhere from $500 billion to several trillion dollars worth of land. And uh, I, I would love to see this process accompanied by the launch of a currency that competes with the dollar and could potentially uh, displace it as soon as the market's ready for it.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. Yeah, you spoke a bit briefly there about Scotland and their movement for independence as well. But again, if you think about the, the, the Scottish predicament now, is right now in Scotland, you've actually got the Scottish government, you've got down in um, London, you've got the British government, and then you've got in Europe, the European Parliament. So there's yeah. actually three levels of government and three levels of costs. And, yeah. you know, and most of the Scottish people, they're wanting to get independence from Scotland and retain part of Europe because of the movement there. But, you know, I, I'm a great believer in Scotland should just be independent of them all, you know? But I don't see yeah. the point in us being part of the European Union because it's just another form of control, another cost, and another way of just legitimizing why they're actually running. And, you know, the way they operate is, to me, it's it's... There's problems with how that operates as well, but you know, ultimately it's just you want to be in control as close as you can to the localization of where who's actually been involved in it, rather than having people in another part of the world controlling what you're doing in terms of decision-making process when they don't actually live there. And I just think that the blockchain with the transparency angle, because one of the things I think about the blockchain and what it's gonna solve is, essentially it's the day of the dictator going to end shortly so all these dictators in africa and other places in south america whereby they come in they basically take control of the country usually it's some sort of military coup and then ultimately we're the new government all the land all the resources now belong to us nobody owns anything you all now get a job in the government to keep everyone reasonably happy and then we go forward and then yeah. three, four, five years, the cycle gets worse again, where this new dictators that come in there, hasn't changed much from the old dictator, and everyone who owned land being passed down from father to son for generations, because it's not written down anywhere or not documented anywhere, it's no longer exists. There's actually someone in San Diego that's actually doing a form of blockchain for places out in Africa that I was reading, whereby... You know, they're actually helping these people on the grid in terms of ownerships for farms, for rights and stuff, because, you know, we all walk around with all sorts of tracking devices. You know, you've got your phone, your watch, this, as you say, social security. So whatever is yours is yours. But over in these parts of the world, it's just like, you know, it's it's, it's a different lifestyle. So because it's not documented what they own, it's easy to take what they own, you know? whereby this was decentralized, so this person, we know they own that farm. So whoever comes in, if they want to be the next dictator and take the farm, at least the rest of the world from the outset will go, no, well, that farm just belongs to, you know, Joe Bloggs, who owns the farmer and stuff like that. And these sort of things, I think, are going to happen in place.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really great way, I think, of uh, sort of demonstrating to people how a, a global decentralized blockchain concept of ownership, even in terms of land deeds, is way more secure than than allowing governments to be the authority.
0: (coughs) Yeah, it it definitely, and it's just like things like that that'll start to happen, and I feel that the blockchain, it's gonna change the world in a different way, you know, because we're good, transparency is gonna happen, because I say to people all the time, you know, Every item of clothing or personal, you know, computer or phone, you know, you'll go online to Amazon, spend hours searching, trying to find the best deal, or you're going on vacation, you'll put all this time and effort to get the best deal and to get the best product that you want. But every single month, you're writing a paycheck to the government, and when do you have a look to see what do they spend the federal money on, you know? And it's just a case of that money. It's just like we don't even think about why we should actually find out what's going on. I, I worked for the British government doing public procurement for three years back in Aberdeen, and it amazed me the contracts that are coming through on a daily basis. You know, just for a thousand, there was a contract for I mean, one time for like uh, three hundred and fifty thousand uh, pounds to make a new sword that was going to get put up in one part down in London. You're just thinking, okay, well that's good. It keeps history going. But you know, maybe we want to use the three hundred and fifty thousand to pay for ten years, I mean ten nurses' salaries for a year. You know, it's you start equating things. In San Diego, you see it with the new F-18s. So there was an article out in the paper, these new F-18s are going to cost $120 million each, and we're going to order 30 of them. But once we order the 30, we're going to maybe order another 90 next year at 90 million. So we're actually getting a good deal. But you're suddenly thinking, Well, that's $130 million a plane. You know what I mean? It's like, how much does it cost to run a hospital? (laughs) You know, how much is this ejector seat? They're getting so expensive that people don't even want to fly them, you know? It's like
1: there's going to be a point at which we're able to look back on this era of human history of, of modern bureaucratic governments and central banking and see how much has been stolen from people by banks and governments. Uh, in, in collusion and I, i'm not i, I don't want to suggest that in any way i'm I'm not a, a you know absolute capitalist in the sense that you own yourself and you property rights are essential to human rights uh, but there is something i i really i realize that i have as, as a common sympathy with with a lot of leftists and communists and socialists and and the, the hardcore activists and i hope that in saying this, it, it can it can be a bridge potentially, which is that one of the things that really motivates me as an activist, you know, and and, and an activist for capitalism. Um, you can call me an anarcho-capitalist or a voluntarist or a libertarian, but the injustice that we have seen of what has been stolen is such a, an insane Gordian knot of property that has been stolen and re-stolen and shuffled around and compromised and bought off and sold. And who knows? And it, it one of the statistics that really blows my mind and and it, it, understanding government like this is kind of like having the code to the matrix. And it sucks sometimes because you walk around and you see like, you know, what's really going on instead of the illusion that they want you to have. But the one statistic that really drove this home for me, uh, I came across when I was studying for a debate on immigration, and it, it's pretty well backed up, widely accepted, that global productivity would double if we just eliminated borders as impediments to free flow of labor capital. If people, not, nothing else, didn't change any policy, no national policies at all, except that people were able to work where they wanted to work. Where they were most valued global productivity would double i mean just 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 that just to wrap your head around that it's it, it's insane to think that we allow this to happen that these excuses for government control of human movement of just into where can individuals live and work it's it's mind-boggling when you realize wow we could all have Double the standard of living, or we could all work half as much if we just change that one policy. And when you add up everything that is stolen, all of the productivity that is impeded, and and I, I think that it's not just that there are people who want to steal from us, that there are leeches on the system itself, or that the system itself is a leech on the economy, on the people, but that. There's a need for them to keep people struggling to maintain what is the expected standard of living with what's available with current technology. Eventually, that's going to change, you know, and, and one way or another, I'm excited. As much as I look at these like, these great big evils of government and the cost, you know, and, and, and talk about all the, the wickedness and how, how you know, I, I, even having seen that and seen people killed in, in, in war, I'm so optimistic because of, because of blockchain, but technology in general, we're, we're coming to a, a critical mass phase shift. And, and, and part of that includes the value of an hour of human labor, in terms of creating value of goods and services to create quality of life is just, it's about to go off the charts or be completely rendered irrelevant with artificial intelligence and robot technology. Uh, that kind of stuff that that's what's coming we're about to defeat aging you know within our lifetime you and me you know we are not going to die of old age unless we choose to that's what we're on the verge of so try not to die i don't ride motorcycles anymore because of this because now i'm such an optimist i wrecked four motorcycles and then i realized all this and i'm like no i'm never gonna ride a motorcycle again
0: So it's, uh, but yeah, yeah, but that's definitely interesting because to me it's like, if you look at the, it's, if you look at politics in America, because from the outside of coming in, because I'm Scottish in America, so when people ask me, you know, which party do you support? I say Scottish National Party. You know, everyone's it's like. people, yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, what sort of policies are there? Have you seen Braveheart? And they go, oh, you've seen that, it's good movie in there. Oh, yeah, the same <laughs> I'm from, I'm from the, the, the William Wallace party. Yeah.
1: And they would still go. Wait, who's that? And you go, oh Braveheart.
0: Oh yeah, 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 that guy. That guy. Yeah, yeah. So they're so they everybody likes that, and that way I don't I don't make many enemies. You know, they go. I oh, he's my sports Scottish National Party. I don't really know. But um, but what's interesting is it's it's obviously you've got the the far left now coming in with the Democrats, and to me the questions that they're asking are the right questions. You know. I just think the solutions of let's give them more money to solve it, not the right one, you know, it's like, you know, it's, you know, I've got a son who's autistic. So to me, it's like, you know, for people with special needs and people who need to be looked after in this world, you know, we've got the finance capability to do that and that should just be a given anyway, you know? So the next thing you start to look at is okay for the, you know, the green movement and how people get, you know, Get access to finance and things. But ultimately, the biggest problem is as you actually give more money to government, then to solve these problems, they have to tax you more to get the solution. It's a bit like us moving in from fossil fuels to renewable energy. You know, if we all move to electric cars away from gas cars, then a huge amount of taxation that the government makes, not only on, you know, sort of statewide in terms of the pay for the roads but there's also the federal tax and everything you know and then this yep. taxation goes across everything and all your goods and your produce etc so if we're going to replace this with electric vehicles essentially that taxation should not be there going forward so therefore if we actually move into electric vehicles ideally what should happen is we should give less money to government because they can't tax like that and then by them getting less money, and we're not taxing renewable energy. Because my biggest fear is, if we give all the money to government in this changeover, then we're going to have to tax renewable energy heavily. So this is a, essentially a free energy source that we're creating, but in order to pay for government, we're going to have to tax it. You don't think that, Adnan? What's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it was. It's it's one of the the greatest unseen costs of government that is pretty well hidden, at least from you know, mainstream political discourse. And a lot of this revolves now, I think the biggest example of this is around the auto industry and oil and gas and, and roads as infrastructure. And the government subsidizing all of these things is what makes it, uh, it delays a, a switch over to a different technology. Uh, it, instead of having, uh, you know, as soon as solar is 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 better than fossil fuels for certain features, that it's able to displace it economically. In order for solar to compete, it's competing against an oil and gas industry that's subsidized and has huge advantage because of government policy. And so people think the answer, well, we have to prop up solar, but then you end up with the same problem, the same slowdown, and, and having technologies kind of uh, frozen and resistant to change, as opposed to uh, something that's responsive and is able to, to change with market demand and technology in a more fluid way. So w- with decentralization of government, obviously that plays right into that in terms of at least allowing uh, you know, different competitive environments. So I, I, one of the things that I like about this is I don't have to argue with people about specific policy. If you want that in your state, you want that in your community, I want you to have that right. I want you to be able to experiment with that. And just having that, Uh, truly competitive environment as opposed to one that's centralized uh, gets us past that and and, and I I just I I don't I don't want to try to speak beyond you know my realm of understanding I'm not any kind of expert in uh, you know in this technology but I can look at the history and see where the effects of coercion uh, have, have had huge negative impact in holding back human progress and and really, the biggest one is in this concept of government, where oh, you can have government held accountable by voting them out every two years. Well, in a market, you could withdraw your support at any time. Why do I have to wait two years? It means you're gonna you're gonna force me into your system, and until your art, no, that that doesn't hold water with me. And 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 when you when you start looking for, you know, where's the gun in the room? It it really helps understand. Uh, all, all these negative effects of government i think you're just pointing out another uh one of those those huge unseen ones
0: yeah and it's to do with transition as well it's to me it's like you know the world's energy requirements going to double by 2050 so therefore it's going to be an energy mix going forward and now you're speaking about iraq and we we still do the the portal rebuilding iraq for oil contracts and construction contracts in iraq And so, this is what we we set the company up from. But you know, last year, that you know, if you were poor in Iraq, you're averaging like five hours worth of electricity a day. So, if you lived, if you were rich, you lived in the gated communities, and it's not like rich compared to here, it's just rich compared to in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, You're basically, so when actually the electricity goes down, this is the same in the green zone, they've all got generators. So, within 30 seconds, boom, the electricity, we switch to generators. And we keep that going until the grid's got enough to actually power everybody again. And then they suddenly switch off the generators and the grid goes back on. And that way, there's continuity of electricity. But if you're poor in Iraq, suddenly, you know, you've only got five hours worth of electricity a day. You're essentially your lifespan's been reduced by 10 years just because the fact you can't get electricity. And then you look at somewhere like here in America, whereby, you know, we're all arguing which energy source we've got. But these people actually need energy so this is the other problem you've got is yeah. you, you can't just basically stop these people in the world getting it to me it's like the ideal situation would be the entire world would be hundred percent energy self-sufficient you know so the energy you required you actually created where you're from you know and then this would actually start to stop a lot of problems because suddenly if you're hundred percent energy self-sufficient Then, you know, why do you need to invade these countries to get their energy sources? Because you've already got energy in the first place, you know? And that's an optimum level of what you're trying to get to and what we're trying to create, you know? So to me, it's like, and then the next thing is when you start looking at that, it's all about driving the price of energy down. Because the problem is the cost of living keeps going up and up and up and up. But the big cost behind it is taxation and the cost of energy. So if the cost of energy keeps going up, the cost of products go up, the cost of service goes up, and everything goes up there as well. Whereby, if we're getting to a point whereby everything's about driving energy prices down, then ultimately, the cost of living can essentially start to go down from that aspect as well. And this is why I think the blockchain is a tool from an informational point to whereby if we actually look at the world as... This is the energy we've got right now. This is the energy we're needing to consume by 2050. This is all the energy sources. And in these parts of the world, these people are going to have to use fossil fuels or other energy sources longer than we have to use in the West, because ultimately, they would need electricity. I was seeing in Kosovo, General Electric put in a new clean coal plant, and that creates 90% of the electricity in the country. Now everyone's going to, oh, clean coal. This is like horrible. Why are you putting in a coal plant? But at the end of the day, these people don't have electricity all the time. You know what I mean? So why can't they just put in a coal plant? They actually manu, you know, they sort of burn coal there in a more eco-friendly way than we do in China, which is better anyway. But at least they get electricity, and by getting electricity, then they can get the benefits of what a Western society can get. You know. So for your
1: vision of fully decentralized energy production, what technologies?
0: Is that going to be in across in, all energy sources? I think. And how
1: well? How long do you think? Well, how much of it would be fossil fuel versus uh, solar versus wind versus maybe hydrothermal even? Um, yeah. And how long would it take to achieve at least that decentralization that gets us away from the, the you know all the problems of, of the current corporatism?
0: I, I just think that, that I think that if you created a system in place whereby you can actually view it as a whole. So we actually have to understand this is the energy consumption and what we're looking to do. Because you look at coal production in America. Now America's producing coal right now, but they're not actually burning it. They're actually exporting it to China. And the second place everyone's exporting all their coal to now is Japan. So Japan had that uh, tsunami uh, when it hit the nuclear power plant and they closed down all their nuclear power plants and now they're the second biggest importer of coal in the world. Now, because they've hushed everything with this nuclear power and people look at nuclear power as a sort of, uh, well, it's eco-friendly because it doesn't create CO2 emissions. But then how do you get rid of nuclear waste? Now, Scotland's a place where we've had different nuclear power plants, you know, and, and I've met the, and France is the leading nuclear place in the world. I, I sat there and interviewed an expert when we ran this website, Your Renewable News, back when old boss Mike Knox back in 2005, and it was from the company Allstorm. And he actually sat there, cleverest guy, one of the cleverest guys I've ever met. And I just said, "Well, what happens when the all the nuclear waste there's too much for the power plant to cope with? How do you dispose of it then?" He says, "Well, what we do is we stick it into big lead containers and we bury it at the bottom of coal mines." And I said, "And how long does that take for it actually to become not toxic? Or anywhere between fifty to two hundred thousand years, something?" <laughs> And so we've only been keeping records here for basically 2,000 years. And here's the solution is 200. And then he proceeded to say the even more ridiculous thing after that is, well, there's one thing that people are talking about is if we collected all the waste and put it on a rocket, if you send it to the sun, I said, so what you want to do is send the world's biggest nuclear bomb to the sun to disintegrate it all. Yeah, we've worked (laughs) it out. It wouldn't even get to the sun to do it. But what I'm saying, it's like, and you're with it, you know. And the guy was just like a genius, but this is like a solution to something, so then you start well, thinking of nuclear gets, power.
1: I like the idea of sending it into space, though, that's got to be viable, right? Just
0: yeah, yeah, unless you hit Elon Musk's Mars one, which you won't be too happy with and knock it all out, but but that's to a certain extent. But then again, you're just it doesn't fit the solution, it's like everything we're moving is to carbon right now. So wind turbines are you all making its carbon blades, it's carbon. Everybody loves carbon. All new cars are carbon. They're making the lightweight for electric. But actual fact, if you actually research this and what they don't want to speak about is that the cutoffs of the carbon. So if you're cutting a wind blade or a side of a car, that actually that cutoffs, it, because it's been made with polymers and resin, it's actually very difficult. It's not like aluminium. You can't just recycle this, this, it may. So all that cutoffs is currently getting put into landfill sites as well. You know, I don't know how many millions of tons are getting put into that, but that's actually what's happening. So in a way, rather than just say, well, it's green. Yeah, it's green. It's because it's not closing the CO2 emissions. But by us doing this, we're actually starting to not get rid of this byproduct of this. And it's like the byproduct of nuclear. And I just think that in going forward, it will just be some form of energy mix. Different parts of the world will be more eco-friendly than others as they hit their industrial revolution. But everyone should get electricity. There should be some sort of playing field where we understand that and realize that each one that's a solution, there's obviously a byproduct for it. So as part of the development What are we using as byproduct rather than just continue to keep burying the earth because it just becomes toxic no matter which way you look at it you know and this is all the problems and I just feel that right now because a lot of politicians they just want to say fossil fuels is bad and renewables is good but I could make a list of things that I feel renewables aren't good for because part of the problem as well as a lot of the technology superseding itself so fast so I used to go to the All Energy Exhibition UK so the problem is. They're making all these renewable energy wind turbines this year. When you go back next year, it's... No, obsolete. It. Yeah, so they're obsolete. So what's happened to that obsolete technology there? And then really what we're doing on the blockchain is we're looking to tokenize the oil-producing assets uh, on, uh, into token format. So if you think of an oil lease right now, what happens is the money's locked into the life cycle of the project. So what we're about to do is by creating token format, putting on the blockchain through a trading platform, we're going to be able to allow people to actually trade these tokens. And it allows the movement of liquidity. But if you think of the oil industry's got producing assets or production around about $5 trillion a year. So if we unlock the producing the liquidity of five trillion dollars. Now, if in parallel, if we create, and we're looking at doing this, we're gonna create a platform to tokenize renewable energy projects, like wind farms and solar farms, producing assets in the same way as an oil producing asset. Now, the problem with these producing assets is they're underfunded. The most um, uh, renewable energy projects, because they don't hit profitability until year eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, they're actually losing money until they hit profitability and after a hit break even, and after that is high profitability going forward. So what we're looking to do in our project is ultimately unlock the liquidity of oil and gas where the money's locked into the life cycle of the project, putting it in token format in a platform, and then unlock the liquidity of renewable energy projects, which are underfunded. Now if we can unlock both at the same time, which we're looking to do, then people can actually take the movement of lock liquidity in oil and gas and start to put that into renewable energy projects all through the blockchain and by tokenization. So you're talking
1: about oil and gas development projects that are over a period of 8 to 12 years? Is that right?
0: Yeah. But normally in these ones, it'll be 15 to 20 years. So, right now, if you think of an oil project out the Midwest, okay, what happens is the, the people invest in the drilling activity of it. So, the project will go for, say, 20 years. So, the operator will own, say, you know, 70% of the project. The, the landowner, which is quite often the farmer, he'll own, you know, 12 to 15%. And the other 15% is owned by 100, 200 people. If it's bigger projects, it could be more. And then each month, they get cut a working interest check from the refining company based on how much of the production they own and how much has been sold. And this will go for the 20-year period or the 15-year period until they actually run out of this. You know, it becomes too difficult to get the oil. So what we're looking to do is to take the financial asset and by actually breaking that down into tokens and putting on a trading platform, we allow people to trade these tokens so the money's not locked into the life cycle of the project. I right. so right.
1: borrow against those investments in tokens that are trading. Oh Yeah,
0: or yeah, you can sell your tokens. So right now you can't sell your working interest where you can sell those tokens. So suddenly you're creating liquidity in an industry that you're using the blockchain to disrupt the 100-year-old industry because this is the way it's operating. And the oil industry is set up for tokenization. Now, people know it from tokenizing real estate projects, but the problem is real estate projects, the people like to own real estate projects as a whole, you know. It's just the way you own things, you know. For oil, you know, do you actually care whether you own that oil as a commodity? Do you care if you actually own the, the nodding pump jacks? You don't really care about that. You just care about the production and the value and the financial benefits of actually owning it. So by us unlocking the liquidity, we'll actually allow this movement of tokens. Essentially, it's a different use case of the blockchain. So if Bitcoin's a financial use case, this is a different use case. But what we're looking to do is to also set up a platform on the same layer, so it'll work in parallel, whereby we'll tokenize underfunded renewable energy projects because they've got liquidity problems. So they've got liquidity problems in from years zero up to eight. So whatever they factor in, as things go along, they are needing additional capital. So if we tokenize them, then we're going to allow the user this opportunity to invest in these renewable energy projects. So you might not even invest in oil. You can invest directly in it. They can use this. But also, by us allowing people to move the money that's locked into oil and gas and fossil fuel projects, they can take that tokens and they can sell or trade the tokens directly into the renewable energy projects. And well, well,
1: well, before I, I want to go back to the challenge that, the, the, the where I was going with this, that you were saying it's for oil and gas developments around the period of not just 8 to 12, but sometimes as as much as 20 years. Uh, I, I want to ask, like, you know, what is the longevity of this token in terms of is there, or, or even this, Excuse me, this, this whole framework, and that if, I mean, if this is a success, you put yourself out of a business in the sense that if, if, if we really take the next leap in renewables, and, and, and you know, I, I don't know how, I, because I'm not an expert on the timing, I just see the bigger dynamics of where this is going. But what happens when solar gets so ridiculously cheap and efficient and effective and reliable? that anybody can afford it with, you know, a hundred dollars thing you put on your house and it powers your home and it's plug and play. And, and it, 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 you know, you can run a car with a solar panel on the roof. You know, I, I don't, or, or there's maybe more realistic at that point, you're gonna have drone taxis that go and fly to solar powered recharging towers where it's, it's just so effective and efficient that the, the energy's almost free. Is, is there a leap like that coming? Is is there some other challenge to this? Because there are a lot of people who would say we should be completely off fossil fuels in 10 years or in 20 years. And I know some of that's you know unrealistic liberal fantasy thinking, but there's gotta be a leap like that happening somewhere on the scale of 20 years, right?
0: Yeah, it depends where you live in the world though, you know? It's like other companies are running their industrial revolution. So essentially if you look at China right now, everyone goes, well, China's spending the most money in renewable energy. But China's basically buying up all the oil. Like Saudi Arabia is now shipping all their oil to, to China because they've got essentially 2 billion people about to come onto the grid. And that's 2 billion people who've been living off grid. They're now coming onto the grid. So they're going to use electricity. They're going to have cars. They're going to have this. They're going to have all these things that we've got in the West as they're starting to generate electricity. So, and India is another place. There's a massive industrial revolution in terms of doing this. So if you think of how we are trying to move off-grid, if you think of like America as a country, it's like CO2 emissions are increasing the fastest in your three biggest cities, which are New York, LA, and Chicago. So they are now, they reckon in two, three years' time, that'll be 14 to 15% of all CO2 emissions from these three cities. So if you look at a city like L.A., which, you know, I love L.A. as a city. It's a great place, city of angels. But you go up there and there's 100,000 people living homeless on the streets and people just are sort of used to this there as well. And you're creating, you know, the place is just a giant pile of smog because you've got millions of cars on the road. You've got this. You've got that. To me. In order for us to move forward, it's not about some guy out in the Illinois Basin who lives in some farm and the top, you know the end of a, a road that's 20 miles that, that there with his. Uh, and this comes back to the Second Amendment and all that. If this guy's got a shotgun, I don't really care, you know. If he's got a guns, because he isn't bothering him, his CO2 emission footprint is probably zero because he's probably got crops. He's got this. He's got all these things going there. It's the epicenters of where we live that has to change. Because if we become green in these areas first, where the CO2 emissions are rising, and you saw all the problems, that's how the whole thing will spin out. Because these other areas there, essentially what they're doing is, the, you know, nobody lives there. That's the thing. So the CO2 emissions are like
1: sort of like a concentric process that's going to happen over the next few generations.
0: Yeah, and, and it's the, it's the big mega cities in the world. if they become a hundred percent green, that's how the process will speed up. And then if you start looking at transition and energy, you know we've looked at it already it's so right now if you're producing oil in the Midwest, you know we're actually going to be doing this year uh, with producing assets is we're going to be sticking solar panels and wind turbines on the side of uh, the nodding donkeys pump jacks. Now the reason we're doing that is, because we are gonna generate electricity cheaper than you pull off the grid. So what's that gonna do is two things. One, we're gonna reduce the CO2 emissions of that barrel of oil because we've actually managed to use electricity. But essentially what you start to do is you start to infiltrate fossil fuels with renewable energy. So to me, this is how you can transition faster. So your first thing is, right, here's all the fossil fuels, all the nuclear energy that we are required in the world or we're using right now in America. And you know, and the nuclear power in America is like 20%. Suddenly, all the electricity this fossil fuels require, if that electricity is generated from renewable energy, automatically we drop the CO2 emissions in the generation of this fossil fuels. But this speeds up the transition because suddenly you're using the profitability from fossil fuels to invest in renewable energy. And then suddenly, if you start putting wind turbines up in all these places, because why does the farmer in these fields want you to drill oil? Because it's his land. He's got the oil under the ground and he knows if he hits a gusher, he's going to make more money in the oil than he is from all the farming crops above, whereby if you start putting solar Farms on there and wind turbines. It doesn't affect his crops. That actually makes his production of oil cheaper. Then he'll like that. And then by you giving him this new revenue source, where he can actually start to sell this electricity. Now here's the government control again. The governments in these a lot of these places don't want to pay for electricity. But what he could do get round of it is he could uh, give all the farmers next to him free electricity. Because if he starts doing that, then it's going to put all these electricity companies out of business. Because the problem is, as we start to go off-grid, it's this: the electricity companies are the ones who are going to suffer because they're no longer going to be able to sell the electricity for it. And then when people are going to be smart in terms of, if we set up in terms of, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to cover my house in solar panels. And you know what? My next-door neighbor, I'm going to give you free electricity as well. So rather than just, because right now, what's happening in California is, People are actually creating electricity, putting it back to the grid and creating surplus. And now the electricity companies are now selling your electricity to the guy next door at an even bigger profit, you know? Right,
1: with a government-granted monopoly.
0: Yeah, so it's there. So as people start to go off-grid, now this is all going to work in places whereby, you know, we have got this capability and cash. You know, we've got 100% electricity. I think parts of the world whereby there's a starvation, that's maybe not the right word, of electricity, but there's a shortfall of electricity, and they need this. They, well, whatever the source is that they need, they should get that. You know, We can't stop them because once they've got 100% electricity, then they can get access to the internet. And by access to the internet, they get access to education. By education, they can do this, and they can start getting lights because if you haven't got electricity like Iraq, it means like once it's dark, you're on candlelight. You know? Yeah it's yeah. like, there's no computers, there's no nothing. It's just like, basically, it's like, and no running water, because that stops as well. It's just suddenly like, boom, it's like, how are you going to get through the day, you know? So
1: well, it's, 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 it's scary how little has changed since I was there in 2004 sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we, we have a certain expectation in, in, in the first world of progress, of every year things getting better. And when you've lived in a war zone for the last, well, gee, I guess it was March 19, 2003 was the invasion of Iraq. So 16 plus years. Yeah. It kind of slows things down a little bit. And, and I, I just want to underscore something that you said earlier um, about poor people versus rich people in Iraq where um, their idea of rich um, would be like lower middle class standard of living here in the United States is that I think Kind of what you're getting at, well, right? If, if, they think
0: you're ri- you're, you're, if they think you're rich, if you've got electricity or access right. to a generator, whereby right. we have all got electricity here.
1: Yeah, and like the first thing, like I live off grid, and, and I'm um I'm I'm all solar, and uh, I use a generator occasionally for power tools, which is very rare that I even need it. Um, but like we we have a profusion of wealth in in the first world today that we really kind of take for granted in the sense that if you cut off my electricity, I, I could go buy a generator. You know, I could like, we, we have this kind of expectation that, there, that there's a Walmart down the street and there's a big pile of stuff. And even if you're on fixed income in, in America, you can go get a big chunk of the pile of stuff and get what you need and bring it home. And you can have battery packs and so, you know, mini solar setups and you can just you go buy that. And it's like, it's not a big deal in Iraq. That's just not available to the majority of people there. And to what you were saying about the, the, the continued demand and the shift in the energy market, those people who have that uh, much lower level of just material wealth and development of their society in, in, in those countries and those areas, they still have the explosive need for energy and for, for electricity and for, for gas for vehicles. That's going to be the dominant paradigm there for, for a long time. I'd like to think that you know like your your, your thought about starting in the cities and, and, and the effects rippling out. Um, I, I love your business. I want every, everything possible, you know good to happen for, your, for, for, for everything that you're doing because it's, it's bringing a whole other level of competition to the energy market that is stifled by government and is going to move the ball forward. It's just one thing I think I, I, I disagree with you on is that uh, I don't think it's going to last as long as you think. I think each circle will actually—it's not like a like a like a ripple in a pond from a stone being thrown, where the rings get further out and they slow down. I think I think it's just going to go faster. I think that the, the this process that we're talking about, uh, that you're a part of, of the energy evolution in the United States and the world, I should say, is uh, is
0: Ultimately, uh, I, I'm setting a business up that I want people to invest in. That you know, the ultimate goal is for everyone to have energy free. <laughs> yeah, right. So hopefully, nobody who's invested listens to this part. Right. Now. So, so you well, asked
1: why the Libertarian Party? See, I say, I'd say that's that's a really noble entrepreneurial attitude, right there. You know, the attitude shouldn't be to to make the biggest pile of money for myself, but to provide the greatest value for humanity. To Positively affect the, the the delivery of goods and services and move resources to improve human life to increase human happiness. And it, the the Libertarian Party similarly, we're the only political party whose job is at least implicitly to put ourselves out of a job. And and I I, I wish you know that that uh, more people in the entrepreneurial space saw things that way. I think they do. I think in the in the, the modern Silicon Valley, you know, fail fast kind of mentality of entrepreneurship. There, there's a growing awareness of, um, you know, we're not doing this to make money. We're doing this to innovate. We're doing this to, to serve humanity. And, and I think there's, um, I think that, as you say, is,
0: is it evolving so fast now that people need to do that. And then peer group pressure. I think people start to understand now that they they've got power. You know. Yeah, you know, you know okay, you are you think you're controlled by Facebook, you're doing that as well. But there's enough of you start to complain about something, it starts to make a difference. And the, the other thing that I think that's going to happen, that's going to come up in the next few years is, so you think about why the economy's done better under President Trump than what did President Obama. So I started to look into that just from an economic point of view, and he started to push inward investment coming back into the country. Now, you know, I, I work for the part of the British government and everything was geared around inward investment but if you start to look at co2 emissions so you start thinking of co2 emissions as you know something that we're globally we all own so currently right now they reckon five percent of all co2 emissions in china is actually servicing the u.s marketplace so when you start thinking about that that's crazy numbers it's just like so our co2 emissions are going down because we get all our steel, which takes up most of it, but then all of our products and services made in China. And then in addition to them getting made in sweatshops whereby they're not regulated and they're just blasting this stuff out anywhere, someone like Nike, who's actually now moving all their manufacturing plants from China to Vietnam because it's cheaper, so even cheaper labor, and then in addition to that, it's less regulated. So they're creating a lot of CO2 emissions and then they're taking your pair of trainers and they're sticking them in some giant big boat or a plane and then they're flying them all the way over here and they're bringing them to America and then you put in your trainers. You don't know the CO2 emissions that's been caused by that. And what I think is gonna happen is once people start to realize what's actually about to happen is that, wait a minute, through automation and then an artificial intelligence, why can't we have these manufacturing plants back where the manufacturing plants used to be? Yeah, there's not going to be 5,000 guys working in them. There'll be 50 guys and a heap of robots. But I'll say what, well, the 50 guys and a heap of robots will actually be creating your trainers more eco-friendly. And actually, by having this inward investment coming back, I think what's going to start to happen across the world is once the individual starts to it's like a calorie count when people go in to buy their um, yogurts. I don't want to get this yogurt because it's got 190 calories. I want this one as 160 calories. Mm-hmm. Once we start putting on the CO2 emissions of every single product you get, people are going to start thinking, wait a minute, I want to get that product manufactured in America or manufactured in right. somewhere else. I'm going to get, I want to manufacture here because, wait a minute, I don't want this to be manufactured in some sweatshop because we talk about the sweatshops and the unfair treatment of people, but when you start to actually look at it from a product-by-product basis, using the blockchain and this ability to track everything out there on a decentralized system, we'll essentially be able to track the CO2 emissions and every single thing that gets manufactured in the world. And if we start to be able to do that, people will start having this movement. And then if people start doing it, and this is when I was coming back to this inadvertently... Uh, President Trump bringing this manufacturing back to America. But to me, if you forget about doing it from a policy thing, because he wants to do it America first, and you do it actually from a CO2 emissions thing, if everyone yeah. starts manufacturing the stuff where they've got it from, and Western companies will do it first, because we are the ones who are actually pushing for this. But other companies are still, because they're going through their form of industrial revolution, they're still going to essentially have to wait for this period to happen. But it's not going to be, as you say, because what's going to happen here faster is going to it's not it's not going to be the, the pond with the stone and the ripple effects. It's going to be, wait a minute, this is working here. We're going to ship that abroad. And it's a bit like I think a lot of because I would say I'm liberal in a lot of my thinking. You know, I grew up in the country, I think of an environment, yeah, I work in the oil and energy industry, but I, you know I think about bees, I think about all these things. I want the planet to be better than when we left it for the next generation, like we should do. So you start thinking about that, you start trying to answer these questions, and it comes back to the same thing as what you're speaking about as federal government, in order for us to do this. Do we need this layer of government in the middle of the world eating up all the cash and telling us how to do it? Or are we smart enough as a species to realize, wait a yep. minute, let's not give yep. them all this taxation money. Let's take everything back. Let's manufacture here with machines. Let's not have to get taxed in it. Suddenly, without this taxation, everything's cheaper. And then if everything becomes cheaper, then we can actually have all a better standard of living. You know. I
1: want to go back to, to something you said is a really exciting idea that it, it occurred to me, we've been able to globalize trade faster than we've been able to globalize awareness and just bring that awareness of the consumption of fossil fuels outside it, through that kind of consumer guilt tripping or, or giving people the option at least to be a, a more conscientious consumer and say, I'm going to buy from, you know, from from something that's that's of a lower carbon footprint, whatever, however, you, you know, that's expressed to, to have the greatest impact. And I think there's, there's an even uh, greater step in this. And, you know, you ask, like, does, does having that layer of government help this? And the, the answer is obviously not, because what the government does is it creates the economic inequalities that allows for the destruction of environmental resources in third world countries through this American manufacturing trade consumer culture practice or, or just overall dynamic. If you get rid of those barriers, you have a smoother global economy where the fluctuations are based on where people are and where they're productive, rather than are you inside this government line or, or in this government line. And as exciting as that is, that, that, that awareness being the first thing, uh, and, and I don't know if this is going to happen uh, before or after we, we, we switch to all uh, you know sustainable energy, but with the government interference in the Energy industry in general, one of the biggest unseen influences is the uh, function as an insurance company. Like, for example, you were talking about the uh, nuclear waste being put in lead boxes and buried. Well, why are they allowed to do that? Well, because the government, that stamp of approval, we said it was okay. And in a market system, you'd have to have an insurance company actually take on the liability of that and go through the appropriate process and say, well, yes. If it leaks, we'll pay the damages. We'll take the accountability. And if you're going to do something like this, and there's going to be appropriate financial protections around you, the due diligence must be done. Not you bought off the government inspector and he gave you the stamp. And in a bigger picture way, with what you're getting at, where you have you know high carbon industrialization in third world countries, manufacturing for first world markets, it's because there's been uh, because of those, those government boundaries, the ability to partition the costs. This isn't capitalism. This is socialism. This is a socialization of resources in a way that's inevitably corrupt. Privatization of profits, so, so, socialization of costs. And this is just improvement of the market, what you're talking about. But it's really exciting that eventually we're going to get to that point where costs are properly accounted for.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's just that to me, that's the, how the future comes, and it's just this ability of transparency. And it comes back to this: if you put it on the blockchain, it can't be deleted. You know, and now people are putting stuff on permission blockchains and information, but we start putting that information on there, and you know, you get all the same people saying you know, or oh, I don't feel comfortable with that. But either you're on Facebook all day, they, 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 you, you walk around with a tracking device on you, you've got, a, you know, a million different things. It's just like, they know everything what you do, basically. Oh, yeah. Day. So this information is tracked. So what difference does it mean that the ownership of what you've got, and it'll still be encrypted, so they just can't come into your house. But, you know, ultimately, somebody somewhere will own it, and you'll be able to go back to it, and this information is available. And I think... To me, that's when and this is what's exciting about the blockchain is because ultimately when you Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, he invented the blockchain. And to me, it's just like this is the next revolution of the blockchain is how does it access the rest of the world's wealth in going into it? And Libra is going to be key because Libra is essentially, well, it is key it's what they've done is they've actually put up there that we're going to create this banking for the unbanked. Okay. Whether you like Mark Zuckerberg or not, but ultimately yeah. it's, he's offering yeah. a service to people they don't have where they live in some of these countries. You live, you know, if you live in North Korea, do you want yeah. to money North Korean bank or are we going to have a Libra? Well, yeah, anyway. it's a technological leapfrog.
1: Well, I got, I got to go in a minute, Alistair, but I got, I got to ask one last question because this is, All of the stuff that we're talking about that that intersects with blockchain, it could be said to hinge around one potential event, which would be the displacement of fiat with Bitcoin or any other blockchain-based currency. And I'm always the techno-optimist, you know, I, I, I would like to think it could happen. Uh, any day now that, that we're one killer app away from everybody getting it and going, okay, we got Bitcoin and then Zion coin AmeriCoin like all of these other projects the possibility of accountability in so many other ways is is Going to be that much easier when when the world is has, has at least psychologically embraced Bitcoin When do you think that would happen? What's your your expert? estimate
0: I I think that, good, good answer, good answer. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think basic because everyone just thinks that Bitcoin and blockchain are the same thing, which they're not. And I think right. once Lib- if Libra comes out and it's successful, and what's interesting is you've got people like Visa and Mastercard, and PayPal, and all these massive institutions now wanting to get involved in the blockchain. And to me, this is the this is the floodgate about to open, because. As much as the government and the SEC and everyone's tried to restrict it out with the system, they've actually opened the gates a little bit. Now, your Bitcoin purists, they're right. It's not a pure cryptocurrency, it's a stable coin. But what's about to happen is if you think about Zion coin, if it ended up running the you know, tokenizing the oil industry and we put it into the valuation of Bitcoin, then each coin would be worth about 260000 dollars you know? And that's only 3% of the world's GDP. So if you think that multiplied by the entire world industry sector, and it'll just be a shift, and it'll be just like the start. So that'll shift, and then suddenly it'll open up to so much more trade and cross there as well. And to a certain extent, the floodgates will just open, and you know, industry will improve. And then to me, the next technology will come on, the next technology. And as long as we keep this movement of people right now, whereby we've got a more... I don't want to use the word socialist because I'm, I'm, not, I'm a capitalist, but socialist in their thinking in terms of this liberal thinking of looking after your fellow man, like what you said before about we are living in the most peaceful times in history. It's To me, this is the evolution that's coming in. It's the next generation. It's like, to me, the millennials, if they start to understand it and understand their real power and the next generation in there, if they all adopt the blockchain, they could be the generation that changes the world. You know, yep. because yep. they'll take the power from the, the governments because no longer can the government will the power because if everything's transparent then we can hold you accountable for it. And whether they like it or not, they've created a system that this is going to happen. You know, this like there will be will be downfall, be like, you know, downfall of your own system, falling on your own sword. If we go back to our military terminology, yeah. it's just yeah. but to me that's what's about to happen and governments trying to hold on this more and more and you know, what you're doing Especially with American localization, that it's scary for people in politics. But if they actually start to think about it, it's actually well. Wait a minute, you're just you'll decide how the money's spent where you live. Is that not a better thing? <laughs> yeah, no, and,
1: and, and, you're gonna have,
0: and you're going to have yeah. more of it than you've currently got. Wait a minute, that's actually a good idea. You know, <laughs> you know a lot of people think too of, of what I'm
1: proposing by dissolving the federal government as, as an extreme. Uh, platform. I think it's a very moderate first step in this right direction of localization actually. There are 22 million people who work for the government in the United States and only three million or so are federal employees and some of those will be transitioned to state jobs anyway. So we're talking about cutting something like one in ten government employees. I think we can handle that you know and we're not talking about pulling the rug out from underneath anybody We're talking about you get to have at the state level whatever you want the people in your state whatever they agree to, and it's it's just it's amazing you know how it 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 feels so radically different from what we're doing of keeping the centralized system going, but it's sort of natural and flowing. You go okay, and, and yes, it's incremental, and yes, as as much as I get excited and I want to talk about the next level. It really is incremental, and, 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 and yes, this would be a major turning of the ship, you know, from government growing to government at least being localized, but it, it's pretty easy to get people on board with, you know, the everybody gets what they want strategy. And anyway, yeah. mm-hmm. sir, thank okay. you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I do have
0: to go. Okay, no know. problem. But yeah, good luck, Adam, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information or get our next podcast then visit our website www.zion.com thanks very much have a nice day